This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It may be that on television or in the movies, you've seen obviously successful, wealthy professionals driving, surfing, and generally enjoying what looks like a magical life in Southern California. TV glitz aside, there is some reality to that portrait, and one place it's found is in what is known locally as South Orange County, where expensive cars and high-end stores and private schools seem to be the norm more than the exception. Ted Hamilton knows that world. He lived in it for a time as a successful lawyer there. One day, however, he walked away from it all to pursue a call to pastoral ministry, a distinctly less glamorous and less affluent lifestyle. And that led him here to Westminster Seminary, California. He's a pastor now of New Life PCA here in Escondido, where he's been senior pastor since September 11, 2001. And we'll talk about that in a moment. He's a graduate of Stanford University and Law School. He practiced law at Newport Beach, California for 14 years and graduated from Westminster Seminary, California in 2000. He's also taught homiletics here as a visiting professor of practical theology. Hi, Ted, and welcome to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule. I know you've got lots of things to do, important things to do, rather than to talk to us. But I think it's good for the listener to meet you to find out what happens to our graduates, of which you're one, after they leave. That there's an outcome, and that outcome is that men go out to become ministers of word and sacrament. And they're actually meeting with people, standing in the pulpit, preaching the word of God, counseling, visiting, working with their sessions and consistories, making hospital calls, and all the kinds of things that ministers are supposed to do. But before we get there, let's find out a little bit about you. So where did you grow up? I did grow up in Southern California, born in Northern California. Mom and dad raised us in uh, Southern California, first out in the San Gabriel Valley and then in Orange County Okay, through junior high and high school. So you can say... Dude, with genuine conviction, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, but, but I'm not going to do that on <laughs> this show. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we can coax it out of you. <laughs> so do you surf? No, I don't. I did own a surfboard and um, surfed a little bit back in the day, but no. What do you do that's distinctly Southern Californian, or how did you recreate as a boy? From junior high on, I got into sailing. Oh. And so I uh, sailed everything I could. I was kind of a dock rat crewed on a lot of different boats, did a lot of racing. Oh, very good. Enjoyed it a lot, yeah. I did not know that. I can kind of see that. So have you ever been hit by that sail when it comes over and you're supposed to duck? Absolutely. Is it as bad as it looks? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It looks terrifying. I mean, as a boy who grew up in Nebraska, there's not a lot of sailing. I mean, occasionally for a couple of weeks in July, you might see somebody out on a man-made lake or something, but... Yeah. No, it's, uh, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's good to know. So tell us about your religious upbringing. Where were you raised and all of that? Grew up in a Christian home, but my mom and dad weren't particularly theologically sophisticated. And wherever we moved, mom and dad looked for, I think, probably the best, soundest evangelical church they could find. So in my uh, younger years, it was sort of a denominational grab bag. We ultimately landed about the time I started high school in a solidly evangelical mainline Presbyterian church. And that's where I spent my high school and college years. All right. And then at some point you ended up in a large evangelical sort of Bible church. How would you characterize it? 
Yeah, I did. After uh, serving a number of years in the mainline church and fighting the battles there, we had moved and we'd had kids and we decided, one, we were getting tired of the battles within the denomination and two, really felt it was important to bring our kids' friends together, right? Their school friends and their church friends together. So we looked for a neighborhood church, landed in an independent evangelical church in Irvine that was pastored by a Dallas grad who had been discipled by and mentored by Bruce Waltke. So as Bruce's convictions changed and developed, so did uh, my pastors. And he was really a fine pastor, and it was a great church, great for our family at the time. That's interesting because that anticipates where I wanted to go next, because I wondered how you got from the sort of independent evangelical world into the confessional reformed NAPARC world, the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council world. Probably like a lot of guys, I got exposed as, you know, grew in the faith, studied, going to Sunday school classes and whatnot, got exposed to the usual suspects at various times. Francis Schaeffer, J.I. Packer, John Piper, Jim Boyce, Sinclair Ferguson. And then late 80s, early 90s, buddy of mine turned me on to the new preaching ministry of Tim Keller, and I started getting Tim's cassettes. So that, it was, that dates it, you a little bit. You, yeah. you might want to explain for the listener, just in case, a cassette is a medium of, <laughs> of transmission of information. It's not digital. It's a piece of almost cellophane, and it, it was a way of recording information and playing it back. Absolutely. And you got it by the U.S. mail. Yeah. yeah you <laughs> got it in the mail, and you put it in a thing called a tape player. Right. So. And uh, that was really kind of at the (laughs) end of my sort of pilgrimage into increasingly reformed convictions. So really as a young man coming out of college, reading, studying, talking with friends, I grew in those convictions. And uh, that's what I was looking for in a church and what I was ultimately looking for, of course, in a seminary. And as a professional, you are a high-powered Orange County lawyer. And you start to think about maybe changing vocations. Walk us through that. Again, I've wondered about that, what that must have been like and the struggle that you must have endured as you're thinking about walking away from everything that the world says is desirable. I mean, honestly, there are few places more beautiful in the United States than Newport Beach and few lifestyles more coveted than being a Stanford law grad in a successful law firm living in Newport Beach. And you're thinking about walking away from it all and going down to a you know, moderately sized seminary in San Diego to do what? To become Presbyterian minister. As people look at things from the outside, that seems a little crazy. It did then, too. Uh, It certainly did to my partners. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So you're a partner in this firm. So that's an even bigger investment in this thing. Because that's not easy to do if people don't understand. Not everybody makes partner in a firm like that. It's a bit like uh, tenure in an academic institution. And uh, it was a wonderful firm and wonderful colleagues. And I had a really wonderful career there. But as time went on, I began to sense a growing desire to do the work of a pastor. And it began to conflict with my desire to practice law. It took a long time. Scott, we're talking about, you know, years that this process was ongoing. I was talking about it. I was in a small group of men, Christian guys, six of us, and um, I would share with them and they walked 
with me through the whole process, prayed with me. I think one day when I actually began to think maybe this is a call is I remember meeting with that small group and telling them, guys, you know, when we're sitting in church and we're looking up at the pastor, don't you think he's got the best job in the world? <laughs> don't you want to do that? And how many people said yes? Well, they all looked at me like I'd lost you know, like I had three heads. <laughs> like, are you kidding? That's the last thing we want to do. Yeah. And I realized, oh, I thought everybody thought that. Oh, interesting. And uh, in a sort of a humorous way was the beginning of my thinking, man, maybe this really is something that God is calling me to. That's a great illustration of the sense of internal call. In case the listener is wondering, well, how do I know what an internal call sounds like or feels like? Well, that's part of it, right? You're sitting there and you're watching the minister and you're thinking, I could do that or I'd like to do that. I think that's a wonderful thing to be able to do, to expound scripture to a congregation. Because as you experienced in your small group, not anybody else in that group thought that way. So the fact that you thought that way is kind of an indicator that something's happening inside you. Absolutely. And I didn't take it lightly. So I deliberately then began to seek opportunities to serve in the church. I was still at that point in the mainline church. I became a ruling elder in it. I uh, began to teach Sunday school, seek out the judgment and wisdom of men I respected. They'd listen to me. You know, is this something I can do? Is this something you think I've got gifts for? And, uh, you know, increasingly got confirmed. We knew it was going to be Westminster. I knew it was going to be Westminster if I did go to seminary. So we visited the seminary a few times, met with President Godfrey. And, uh, you know, Linda and I began to pray seriously about it. I didn't want to do it if Linda wasn't on board. Okay, that's important. So you didn't just go on the basis of what you were feeling and thinking, what your own desires were becoming, but you went to the church, visible ecclesiastical institution, and you asked for some kind of confirmation and encouragement. And so you got some of that. And then as a married man, you went to your wife and said, what do you think about this? Are you prepared to go on this journey? Right. So you counted the cost. We really counted the cost and took it seriously. And I, as I said, unless ideally, if the Lord was going to calling me into this, I'd have to obey the Lord regardless of how my wife felt. But I really wanted my wife to be on board. So as this process unfolded, brought her in and began to get her thinking and praying about it. She was, of course, as afraid of it as I was. I mean, there was in both of us a fear that, you know, what are we doing? Why are we leaving this? I mean, where does it mean? Where are we going to go? What's the future look like? I mean, all of that was dark. Yeah. What happens when we're done? Right. We know what things are now and you can project out where you'll be in 10, 15, 20 years, all things remaining equal, right? Nothing dramatic happening. So you can kind of project, look around and see how things will likely turn out in the ordinary providence of God. But when you make a radical course change, to use maybe some nautical imagery, and you steer away or turn away from the wind or whatever you do, you'd make a change like that. You don't really know what happens. No. You're going off a chart now that's not on the chart anymore right. to torture this thing to death. <laughs> <laughs> As I thought about seminary, I mean, I could think about it's a three-year window, right? We could do this in three years, Linda, and I think we can do this. But beyond that, I don't know exactly where the Lord is calling me. To make a long story short, I remember driving home from an afternoon here at the seminary, and we sat in on some classes, in particular a preaching class with Dr. Clowney. And we were driving home, and we were driving through Camp Pendleton on our way back home. And uh, it was quiet in the car. Linda finally looked over, and she goes, you got to do this. <laughs> and from that point on, we were sort of both on the same page. And then it began kind of the process of strategically thinking and planning about getting it done. 
No, that's encouraging that, you know, that she saw it and she began to see things the way you were seeing them. And, yes. And, and saw in you a calling and a giftedness and a potential future ministry. Yes, she did. And I'm very thankful for that. And I was getting that kind of confirmation from my pastors and from the elders I served with and from the men in my small group. You know, I was getting the green light, so it was time to go. I think it's important for the listener to hear that story because every student who's thinking about ministry goes through typically something very much like that. But we don't always spell out the story in detail so that folks, as they're considering this, can see that, no, I'm not the only one who's wrestling with these things, particularly if you're second career. But even if you're, you know, coming out of university and you think, well, okay, if I go to seminary, then what? We live in an age of anxiety and uncertainty and people want guarantees sometimes. And the truth is, really, there aren't. And ministry is risky, because you don't know. You don't know where you're going to be called. You didn't know you were going to be called here in Escondido. You know, when I was in seminary, we were thinking, I'll probably end up in Eureka, South Dakota. <laughs> that was either Menno or Eureka or Sutton, Nebraska. And we didn't end up in any of those three places. <laughs> we ended up in Kansas City and then Chicago and, well, England and Chicago and then here. And we didn't project any of that. Even as late as Christmas or January 1987, we had no idea. It wasn't until March that we had any idea that we might be going to Kansas City. And even then, it was only going to be two years. And then we didn't know. We just kept walking through doors. And God is faithful, isn't he? He's with us and he opens those doors. So it is an act of faith, right? You can't nail everything down. You do have to trust the Lord for the outcome. Absolutely. I'll tell you, Scott, one day I distinctly remember is having now gone through what was probably at least a four-year process. The day I, you know, in my Brooks Brothers suit, walked down the hall from my law office to the managing partner and said, can I talk to you a minute and close the door behind me? That's when it really got real. Sure. You talk about faith. Because you're walking away from a pretty, you know, as the world looks at things, a comfortable living. Not to say there's no stress or no pressure. You don't earn a comfortable living usually without a fair bit of stress and pressure, right? But you're walking away from a known thing. That's right. And as you say, it gets real. Now you're going on this journey where you don't know the outcome. And can you go back? You know, who knows? Right. One thing I do want to say, though, because we had gone through this process and been praying and talking with each other for so long, we both got to the point of realizing we had to do this. We're ready. God was calling us to do this, therefore we have to do this. And so what looked to everybody else like, you know, I was stepping off a cliff actually felt to us like we were stepping off a curb. We realized we were obviously leaving things behind and that we had worked long and hard for. Nevertheless, we were also just as convinced that this is where the Lord was leading us, and therefore, it really wasn't as big a step as I think everybody perceived it to be when the news finally got out. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. 
judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu 888 888- 480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. And that's important, that the Lord does prepare you and enable you and sustain you so that, as you say, and I like that imagery, from the outside, it looks like you're going off a cliff, but experientially, existentially, at the moment you're making the decision, the Lord has so worked in you that you are confident that he's taking care of you and it isn't really as big a thing as it might look. Absolutely. That's important. If the listener is thinking about that or knows somebody who's thinking about this very thing, that's important to know too, that the Lord does prepare you, work in you, and arrange circumstances. And you can't always say, how? Students say, well, how will this go? And I say, well, I don't know the future, but I know God who's in charge of the future and I can talk to him (laughs) about this and we have his promises. That's right. So that's important. So, and you said just casually in passing, of course, it would be Westminster. And not everybody would necessarily say that. So explain why you said to yourself, well, of course, it would be Westminster Seminary, California. Well, I was in South Orange County, living in Irvine, working in Newport. So I wanted to be able to stay in my home, have my kids stay in their schools. We were in a good church. So if uh, we could possibly pull this off, we wanted to stay where we were. There were some options up there closer, but given my theological convictions, given my age, and I was 41, I knew I got to get busy on this. I could go to another seminary that didn't completely jibe with my theological convictions, and I could learn, and I could argue with the professors, and I could sift out the good from the bad. But if I had a choice, I would rather go with an institution that was uh, consistent with my theological convictions, and I didn't want to spend the time to sort of sift and argue with the professors. And Westminster was then the obvious choice, although it involved a bit of a commute. It was 69.8 miles (laughs) from my garage to my parking spot in the parking lot here at the seminary. So I was driving 140 miles a day. And that's a lot, even by Southern California standards. Yeah. Because we're inland a little bit, so you're going over to the coast and then up the five, and it doesn't take much for everything to go sideways on the five. Absolutely. Are you listening to lectures in the car, or how are you passing the time? In the first year, I took English Bible. And one of the requirements was that you had to read through the whole Bible in English. So I, in that first year, I was listening to the Bible on tape. Which, by the way, is a great thing. People maybe don't realize what a powerful thing it is to listen, just hear somebody reading the Word of God. Absolutely. It was meant to be heard, by the way. I still remember listening to the Gospel of John and hearing something that struck me that I hadn't really noticed before on the way to do a Bible study in a nursing home. And... Um, 
I still remember that episode, and it was from hearing. It's powerful. That's powerful. And I listened to some sermons. You know, in the preaching classes, you were required to listen to some sermons, so I would check out sermon tapes. I refer back to your discussion yeah. so that people understand the ancient technology. Yeah, what that was. Uh, kind of like an MP3, only different. Right. So you're listening to stuff as you're going back and forth. Were you able to keep everything together, even though you're spending, you know, at least an hour and a half each way? It was an hour and a half each way, three hours a day in the car. I did okay. Linda got concerned when I let it slip one night that I was doing flashcards on the five at about <laughs> 75 miles an hour. And I do remember losing a few of those flashcards out a window once and you know, taking the Hebrew exam and realizing I was missing a few of the Oops. vocab words. I knew which flashcards had ended up on the freeway. <laughs> yeah, children don't do that now as you're driving. <laughs> Pastor Ted is not recommending that either you text or that you are doing your Greek or Hebrew vocab cards. So Absolutely. But, please don't. All right. Um, you said also that you began your ministry on 9-11, which is a very interesting thing, because as you and I are sitting in the studio now, we've just passed the 15th anniversary, and this episode will come out sometime after that. But you and I both have spent some time over the last two weeks watching documentaries associated with 9-11. So tell us about the beginning of your ministry. You hadn't actually even been installed yet or I don't know if you'd been ordained. So tell us what was going on on 9-11 as you began at New Life PCA. Right. I had been ordained, but I needed to get down here to Escadito to get my kids in school. And uh, my scheduled start date, I think, was October 7. But to get the kids down here in school, we moved to an apartment, got the kids in school. And uh, on that, I believe it was a Tuesday morning, I was making their lunches and getting ready to take them to school when the attacks happened. And um, eventually got on the phone with the elders and the elders together with me. We decided it would be appropriate to call a prayer service mainly that night. I gave a meditation, I think, on Psalm 46, and we prayed, and the church was packed. It was our old building. People from the neighborhood, the New Life people, all that night, you know, the world changed. And uh, we were all reeling a bit and uh, needing, certainly the Christians needing the comfort of leaning on a sovereign God in the midst of that tragic day. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What a way to begin your ministry. It really is a kind of baptism under fire. You haven't actually even officially begun yet, and suddenly you're putting together a prayer service to which members of the community are attending. It's one thing to meet with people in your own congregation where you kind of have a shared understanding of how the world works. You say that God is sovereign over all things. And, um, you know, it's a hard providence to experience and a tragic, terrible thing to have watched. Again, if the depending on how old the listener may be, you know, the memories may not be all that sharp. You know, if you're 21 or so or younger than that, it's just a videotape. But you and I, we watched it in living color with all the uncertainty, not knowing quite what was happening. At first, you know, it was a small plane. It was an accident. And then, of course, we saw the jet. We saw on television the second jet hit the second tower. And then the reports of the Pentagon and maybe the White House and all kinds of uncertainty. And we really didn't know. The president is in a jet flying around. We don't quite know where he is. He's in Louisiana. Then he's, you know, he's in Air Force One. We don't really know. And so it was a very 
tense, uncertain time? Were we being plunged into a new war, World War Three or four, or whatever? What's happening? So now you've invited the community to come to this service. Right. I'm not even sure how the word got out to the community. That was my next question. Because, I mean, pulling this together in short notice, how did you notify the community? Somehow by telephone or email must or have something? Been, it must have been the New Life people talking to their neighbors and just getting the word out. I didn't do anything, but it was packed. I think people were looking around. Sure. It, I think that was pretty much the universal experience. I know uh, lots of pastors have said that post 9-11... Right. The churches grew. How did people respond as you talked to them about God's sovereignty relative to such a terrible event? You know, Scott, I don't actually remember, you know, words that they've responded. We were all kind of numb. You know, I think we came out of there. I know I came out of there, walked out of there just feeling grounded again. I think we all felt like we were on shifting sand that day, not knowing what was happening and knowing that the world had changed, but knowing that we still serve a God who's in control and who does not change. And uh, I think we all left there better prepared to face the challenges of the next day. It really was essential to get people oriented. Disoriented is a good way to describe, you know, just watching the documentaries the last couple of weeks. It's like going through it again and seeing the panic on people's faces and watching, you know, and now there's video coming out that we didn't even see back then. Video shot by college students from a dorm at NYU on the 32nd floor that's quite gripping and really affecting. So we need to, as you say, be reoriented that, yes, God is sovereign and that nothing comes by chance, but everything comes by his fatherly hand. Absolutely. Yeah. So how is ministry, as we begin to draw this to a close, how is ministry different from the law? You've spent all those years, almost about equal amounts of time now as a pastor and as a lawyer. So now you have a way to compare the two phases of your life. You know, Scott, that's a good question. I think the, and I'll get to answer it, but I think actually the similarities may be more interesting between the practice of law and ministry. The similarities are striking. One, both are arenas of service, right? You're serving people. Both involve long hours. Both involve careful analysis of the word. As a lawyer, I'm reading and analyzing judicial decisions and statutes. As a minister, I'm analyzing God's word. The nice thing about God's word is it doesn't change. <laughs> yeah. The statutes are getting constantly updated and sure. decisions keep coming out from court. So it was always a moving target, but careful analysis of the word. And then as a lawyer, communicating complex realities in comprehensible ways. A lot of the reason why people hire lawyers is because they're complex things that they don't have the time to deal with. They want you to deal with it for them, but you have to explain it to them. Without dumbing down, you have to take a complex thing and explain it in a comprehensible way. That's a pretty good description of what a minister of the word has to do as well. The big difference is I'm dealing with people on a whole different level, right? As a lawyer, I was a not so much a courtroom lawyer litigator. I was a transactional lawyer dealing with individuals and their businesses. So I was dealing with business transactions primarily, dealing with people, but largely about business and about money. Now I'm still dealing with people, but the issues are at a much more fundamental, much more emotional, much more uh, important, really, 
level. The, the stakes are higher. The uh, emotions are closer to the surface. And, uh, you know, a lot of the interaction can be a lot more raw than it was when I was practicing law. But that's really the main difference. But a lot of the skills that I employed as a lawyer, I'm still employing as a pastor. As a minister, you get to bring good news. Sometimes as a lawyer, I suppose there was good news of a kind, but the law has a, you know, has a certain character to it. The gospel has a different character. And every Lord's Day, every Sabbath, you stand in a pulpit and announce to people not only the bad news, but also the good news. And not just that, hey, here's some good financial news. No, here's good news about eternal life which is, you know, everything that people own is going to pass away, but they are not going to, right? And we all need to deal with that reality. Absolutely. That's well said, Scott. It is a privilege to be able to deliver good news every Sunday. And yeah, I didn't get to do that all the time as a lawyer. <laughs> and when you go, you know, when somebody's in the hospital, they might want to call a lawyer, depending on what the doctor says. And if the doctor gives his bad news, the lawyer can't help them. But now you can. Absolutely. Right? When the lawyer is of no use anymore yes, and the doctors of no use anymore for all they've done, all the good they've done, you still have a place there. You had a place before. You have a place now to bring them the comfort of Christ. Right. And a lot of those people I'm visiting in the hospital or preaching to it in the church are just like the people that I represented as a lawyer. But I'm now seeing a whole other side of them, right? I'm seeing the real human side where they're now faced not with a business question, but the ultimate issues, life, death. Where's my son? Where's my daughter? What am I going to do? My wife's just left me. I mean, these kinds of raw human situations that I know my clients were going through, but as a lawyer, of course, didn't really have any. It wasn't part of your brief. It wasn't really part of my brief with them, yeah. You have taught preaching here at Westminster Seminary, California, and you are now an experienced preacher. What do you think you've learned both as a preacher and then also teaching preaching here at the seminary? Another great question. One thing I learned is that preaching and teaching preaching are two very different things. <laughs> and it makes me respect even more what you do, Scott, and what the teachers of preaching do here. The teaching skill is different. You know, it's one thing to preach. I found out it was a very different thing for me to face a group of seminarians and tell them how I do or teach them how I do what I do. That's different skill set. One I'm still learning and one I appreciate. I learn that there are common mistakes that preachers make and young preachers make them more often than seasoned preachers. Probably the two most common are trying to pack too much in, and there will be plenty of people at New Life that say, I haven't learned that one yet. Well, one sermon at a time. Ask the students. I'm always telling them, one sermon at a time. You've got your whole life. You don't have to preach three sermons, just one. Absolutely. And you can always <laughs> preach that text again and yes. say it a different way. Uh, so packing too much in is an obvious common mistake, and then not telegraphing sort of the structure more clearly, telling people where you're going, how you're going to get there. And then once you've done that, tell them where they've been, right? You can't be clear enough from the pulpit because if it's clear in your mind, you've got to make it clear in their minds. And it, sometimes I think it's hard to convince students that you really have to do more than you think you have to do to allow people who are just listening to really follow and stay engaged with your sermon. That's something that's uh, hard to learn, but uh, the better we get at it, I think the more effective we get. The last thing is, I think, an encouraging thing, that as a teacher of preaching, you hear a lot of beginner sermons, 
And some are great, some are not so great. But what you learn is that even the not so great sermons deliver the message. And it's a great reminder to me that the power is in the word, it's not in the man. And that even a poor preacher can, if he's communicating the word faithfully, can be effective because it's not really in him, right? The Lord uses his word. So that's encouraging. And I hope that encourages students of preaching that we don't live and die by our proficiency. Our proficiency is never going to be perfect, but God's word is sufficient and he will use even our poor efforts to get his work done. And that's a good thing to remember. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.